We continue on in our sermon series on the book of Judges. We're continuing on in Judges chapter 8. And the title of this morning's sermon, if you're taking notes, is Gideon's Rule, Actions Louder Than Words. Gideon's Rule, Actions Louder Than Words. And we'll be in Judges, as I said, chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 32 this morning. 8, 22 through 32. Well, undoubtedly you've heard or are familiar with this phrase, do what I say, not as I do. Now one may use this phrase as a parent, and quite appropriately I would say, because there are age-appropriate rules. Children cannot do the things that adults do. Your children may have to go to bed at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the evening while you stay up a bit later. And so this is a case of do as I say, not as I do. It's okay for mom and dad to stay up late, but you need to go to bed and get your rest. Nevertheless, this phrase basically signals hypocrisy. And it seems to be the proverb of our age. We're hit in the face daily with examples of hypocrisy over the last couple years. Rules for you, but not rules for me, from those in the highest levels of our government and in our popular culture. But this hypocrisy, we must realize, is not new. It's a trademark of fallen humanity, a hallmark, if you will. And I would say it occupies a special place in the catalog of sins. There was this philosopher in the 20th century, probably one of the greatest political philosophers of that century by the name of uh, Hannah Arendt. And she spoke on hypocrisy and she said, what makes it so plausible to assume that hypocrisy is the vice of vices is that integrity can indeed exist under the cover of all other vices except this one. Only crime and the criminal, it is true, confront us with the perplexity of radical evil, but only the hypocrite is really rotten to the core. Strong words indeed. However, we turn to God's word, we find that our Lord Jesus in Matthew 23 is recorded as using just as strong language in pronouncing seven woes on the Pharisees and the scribes due to their hypocrisy. Now a woe is a, is a term, we find it often in the Bible, and it's, and it's a type of lament, but it's also a prophetic indictment of behavior that will lead to disaster. So it has, we could say, an eschatological overtone to it. It's like this is going to lead to very bad things for you in eternity. So in these seven woes, in this discourse that Jesus is giving in Matthew 23, he links hypocrisy with unbelief. He links it with being a child of hell. He links it with lawlessness. He links it with spiritual blindness. He links it with neglect of spiritual matters, with greed and self-indulgence, with spiritual uncleanliness, and 
the persecution and murder of those anointed to speak God's word. Now this brings us very quickly to the first point that I want to make in this sermon. Point number one is that our practice needs to be as good as our theology. Our practice needs to be as good as our theology. And Jesus, he warned his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you remember this account, how puzzled the disciples were over what is this? Did we forget the bread? Where are we supposed to get bread? Well, that's not what our Lord was talking about. Later he explains to his disciples, so do and observe whatever they tell you, because they preach the law. But not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. So the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is sinful hypocrisy, which, like the yeast of leaven, affects everything it touches. And just as we strive for consistency and coherency in our understanding and interpretation of Scripture, so must we strive for consistency and coherency in our lives so that it aligns with Scripture. Otherwise, we become Pharisees. Pharisees for which the Lord reserves some very choice terms like sons of hell, vipers, whitewashed tombs. Lord forbid that we should be such as those. But to achieve this consistency and coherency, it requires an awareness of Scripture. It's vital to know what God says about how we should live. But it also requires an awareness of self. And that seems to be somewhat of a lost art in these days. Self-awareness is vital since hypocrisy often is a secret sin. John Milton, in his epic poem, Paradise Lost, he says this, For neither man nor angel can discern hypocrisy, the only evil that walks invisible, except to God alone. Now we can spot hypocrisy when it becomes extreme and becomes blatant. We see that constantly, but often it's disguised and we do not see it. We must take care that we don't enter into that error. So we must examine how we are living our life and how are we impacting those around us, remembering that we are image bearers of God dealing with other image bearers of God and that we who are in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And as such, we are living temples of the Lord God. Wherever we might go, whatever we may do, we represent the Lord. We take the Spirit of God with us. So this awareness of self must include awareness of our fallen nature. So even though we who are in Christ are new creations in Christ, our transformations won't be complete until the Lord's return. That means that we're going to fall short. We cannot attain sinless perfection in this life. We must repent when we trespass. It is though our prayerful repentance, excuse me, it is through our prayerful repentance that the Holy Spirit works powerfully in sanctification for us. 
The Apostle Peter, in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, it's recorded that he instructed the church, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he's speaking to those in Christ, those who have tasted that the Lord is good, those who have been saved by our Lord. Otherwise, these things are just part and parcel of the human experience. It's only through Christ that we can put these things away. So important element in this idea and avoidance of hypocrisy is human communication, both righteous and unrighteous communication. From the righteous, those who are saved, and from the unrighteous, those who are unsaved or yet to be saved. And human communication, of course, we think of it mainly as verbal, the words that we speak. And by the words, it's very important when we're listening to someone communicating with us, we listen to the inflection of their words. We listen to the cadence and the tone of what they say. But beyond that, there's more to communication, isn't there? More than just the words. There's facial expression when someone's speaking. We look at the eyes. We look at their posture and how they stand in relation to us. That tells us a lot. All of this combines to give us an extraordinary depth to our interaction, to our communication. And we all know how this communication has been severely impacted by electronic communication that we, we use these days. And we see how it doesn't even come close. Along with these modes of communication that I mentioned, I think we could add behavior as a means of communication. How about when a person says one thing and does another? Perhaps they explicitly contradict what they have said to you. And what does the behavior communicate to you? Is it not truer than the words that were spoken when they do differently than they say? So this idea of behavior, we might lose track of whether or not in this day and age we have the right to expect a certain type of behavior from people. Well, in the second table of the law, that is the fifth through the tenth commandments, which are given to set standards for how we are to interact with one another as image bearers of God, so through both human experience and God's revealed word, we know that this moral law, the Ten Commandments, sets a standard of absolute perfection, a standard that we are absolutely incapable of meeting. However, our moral imperfection does not give anyone license to violate God's law or demand to be graded on a curb, so to speak. Well, everyone else is doing worse than me, so... You know, I don't have to meet this standard. Let's just dumb it down a bit. You know, that may work in a classroom if you've got a really kind teacher or professor who occasionally will do that. But that's, you know, God doesn't do that. That's not, the, that's not what we're given here. So some would claim that that then is unfair, that God cannot require that to which we cannot attain. And I think, this logic 
that type of logic fails on several points. Number one, the creator alone, by definition, establishes how the creature should live. Number two, God being perfect, he cannot give an imperfect or a lower law than what he's given. And number three, since we are image bearers of a perfect God, our moral law must reflect God's perfection. And number four, God, as a loving father, does not abandon his children in an unsolvable dilemma. We're not stuck in this trap out of which we cannot escape. God rescues us from this predicament of sin by the Son's atonement, by the Spirit's regeneration, turning the law from an impossible burden that crushes us unto death into a standard of living in which there's trust, love, and obedience. So in answer to my question, yes, you do have the right to expect certain behavior from people. You have the right to expect honor from younger generations. The fifth commandment requires this. You have the right to expect not to be murdered. The sixth commandment prohibits this. You have the right to expect others not to commit adultery with your spouse. The seventh commandment prohibits this. You have the right to expect others not to steal from you. The eighth commandment prohibits this. You have the right to expect others not to lie about you. The ninth commandment prohibits this. You have the right to expect others not to plot and connive to take your house, take your spouse, take your employees, or take anything else that is yours. The Tenth Commandment prohibits this. Put in these terms, it's not too much to expect, is it? You do have the right to expect a certain type of behavior from people. God says so. Not only does God say so, he demands so. Think about the people we deal with in our lives. Think of someone in a position of authority. Do you hold someone in a position of authority to a higher standard? A person that has power to a greater or lesser degree. A person who's been put in what the government calls a position of trust and confidence. They're there for a reason. As our Lord said... Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Surprisingly, in my police career, I heard a police chief quote this scripture at a promotion of a group of sergeants of police, men and women that had been raised up to a higher rank. That was I was, I was pleased to hear that. I was kind of surprised. Um, so this is a principle that's also recognized by unbelievers. <clears throat> now, as a, a, a negative illustration, there was a painful time when I was a police sergeant where a special unit that I once had been a member of, that ordinarily young officers after a couple years on the department, if they had promise and were seen as hard workers, they were assigned to this special unit. It was a street crimes unit. It was a plainclothes unit. Um, and it was pretty much a, um, a mark of honor and trust to be assigned uh, to this unit. Well, this group of officers um, 
get in a lot of hot water, all of a sudden this um, scandal broke loose in the department that they had been planting evidence on people and arresting them for, with the planted evidence, that they had been stealing money from people. You know, ostensibly, you know, drug dealers, but it doesn't matter. Police officers are not supposed to steal anyone's money. If it's, if it's ill-gotten gains, it should be booked as evidence, not put in an officer's pocket. Well, this was devastating to me. I, I was still young in my career. I did not think that such things would be done by police officers where I worked, you know, maybe far away in some big metropolis on the other coast that might happen, but not here. We were all, you know, dedicated and idealistic and moralistic. But sure enough, it did happen. It was devastating, as I said. So an investigation, of course, was launched. Unfortunately, the investigation did not go very far. The chief who ordered the investigation stopped it after some very minor violations of department policy were found. He didn't get into much into the theft, the planning of evidence. In my mind, it was like every person that these officers had arrested, that case was tainted. This should go to the district attorney's office. We should say these, these convictions, if there were convictions in these arrests, perhaps they should be overturned. This is, this is shocking. We can't, we can't allow people, even if they have a criminal background, to sit in prison if they've been falsely arrested. Well, that was not even touched upon. It turned out that at one point, these officers in committing their shenanigans went to their office, which wasn't in a police building. It was a rented office. And they watched the basketball playoffs. And they had a beer while they watched the basketball playoffs. So the chief stopped the investigation, and they were all fired for drinking a beer on duty. Well, they appealed their firing. Every single one of them won their job back. It was not a fireable offense. These men with very clean records who had glowing evaluations in their personnel files. You go before an appellate, before a a, an appeal judge on a termination, and you have this officer that looks like he is the best thing since sliced bread, and he makes the mistake of having a beer once while he's watching a basketball game in plain clothes, not responding to citizen calls for service, and we're probably going to go off duty after the game was over. And the judges in each case said, no, you, that's, that's not proper to fire this officer for that. You have to discipline him, that's wrong, but you need to hire him back. Well, it comes to find out that there were more transgressions involved than just these officers. It involved supervisors of these officers. It went all the way up to the police chief, and it, had to, and it was stopped. So it would not uncover more sin sin of those that should have been preventing the original one. This reminds me of something that Charles Spurgeon said. I'm going to paraphrase it. He's speaking about temptation here, but I think we can replace sins with temptation. And Spurgeon says, sins are like flies. They come one or two at first, but by and by they buzz about you in swarms. That's the way sins are. And we see this, especially when we talk about people, men, women that are given power.
power, maybe power they're ill-suited for. So do you hold someone in a leadership position to a higher standard, someone who has authority over others? Absolutely you should. And why is that? Again, power and trust. If someone claims to be something or not, be another thing, must their behavior match up with their spoken declaration? Yes, absolutely it should. To behave otherwise is hypocrisy. It is an enacted parable, if you will, of the sin of bearing false witness. And our attempts to reconcile contradictory evidence leads to a state of what they call cognitive dissonance. Those who are experts in, in human behavior says this is a harmful condition for us. Um, So this harmful effect of hypocrisy in human nature, I think, is concrete proof of hypocrisy's sinful nature. And as we will see, Gideon falls into this sin of hypocrisy in the last part of Judges, chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, please turn to Judges, chapter 8. And I'm going to read verses 22 through 23. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So here we have Gideon, and what we've seen of him so far, he's done what the Lord God has anointed him to do, right? He's delivered Israel from their enemy Midian. And in the process of this, as we've read his account, we witness his transformation from a young man of little faith, little faith in the God of Israel, and in himself and his suitability as Yahweh's deliverer of Israel, he's transformed into a mighty man of valor. However, in the beginning of chapter 8, we witness another transformation of Gideon. His behavior becomes like that of an ancient Near East king, that is, a pagan ruler, rather than a judge of the Israelites, anointed by the Lord God. We see this in the fact that he treats his countrymen ruthlessly in his retribution against Sukkot, the town of Sukkot, and the town of Pinuel. And his actions are personal. They're not national, theological in their interest. And this national theological ideally should be um, what we see. It's identical in biblical Israel. It's supposed to be identical. And he treats the death of his brothers as a royal assassination requiring blood vengeance. He makes horrendous demands on people. As example, he orders his firstborn son, Jether, to kill the kings of Midian. And he claims for himself the symbols of royalty taken from this enemy, the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the Midian kings and from their camels. So the men of Israel ask Gideon to rule over them and establish a dynastic house. That's a monarchy. It's not a judge for the son and the grandson to assume this role. This is not what Gideon was called up for. 
But where does this idea come from? In large part because Gideon is acting like a pagan king. Which, you know, contrary to the hoopla we'll see next year when King Charles III is crowned monarch of Great Britain. Interesting that he continued with Charles as his regnal name, considering the history of First Charles and Second Charles, who were absolute tyrants. We'll see if that is a pattern that continues. But it is not to anyone's advantage to be ruled by a mortal king. The scripture clearly points this out. The prophet and last judge of Israel, Samuel, warned Israel about the ways of the king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The ways of the king are forced military service, powerful government bureaucratic institutions, seizure of property, seizure of land, setting aside of agricultural resources for sole use by the government, taxation on every asset. Samuel warned the king will take for himself what is yours and you shall be his slaves. Israel didn't listen then in the future to Samuel. Humans do not listen ordinarily to God's warnings, do we? So what we see in verse 22, where the men ask Gideon to rule over them, is that fear of men, in this case the Midianites, and the desire for this perceived safety from a threat is linked to a lack of faith in the Lord. The men of Israel have already forgotten that the Lord God raised up a deliverer for them in response to their prayerful petitions to him. And they apparently have no faith or trust in the Lord that he will provide for them what he's given them, that he'll provide in the future his rest, that it is stability, his safety, and his security. Rather, they place their trust and the future for themselves and their children and future generations in a man who's not yet king, but already acting like a tyrant. And in exchange for a tenuous grasp at security, it's really less than tenuous, actually. It's really imaginary because we're told in the, in the second book of Samuel that it is the business of kings to go to war. You get a king, he's going to take you to war. That's what kings do. So they were willing to be placed under the yoke of kings whom they did not yet know, Gideon's sons and grandsons. But wait a minute, Pastor Ken, you say. Gideon turned down their offer of kingship. In, in verse 23, we read, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So was this the blunt refusal that we might take it to be? To be sure, Gideon appears to have deferred to Yahweh in this verse. But note what's unsaid here. He does not correct the people's mistaken interpretation of the victory over the Midianites. He didn't say, I will not be king over you because I am not the one who rescued you from the Midianites. It was the Lord. He doesn't say that. Gideon's response to the offer of kingship here contrasts sharply with his earlier humble responses to the Ephraimites when they challenged him 
And he said, I didn't do very much. You did much greater than I. That humility is, is gone. So was that, was that sincere humility? Or was he just playing the Ephraimites because he still had to get those bad guys who had murdered his brothers? That was his focus. So instead of giving the credit for the victory to God, Gideon only alludes to this vague ideal of divine rule over Israel. He's saying the words, isn't he? But is he doing the behavior, the actions? He verbally appears to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Or is it a form of hypocritical do as I say, not as I do? So we must acknowledge that Gideon's theology here is good. The Lord will rule over you is theologically correct. But as we go on, let's see if Gideon's practice is as good as his theology. So this brings us to the second point I want to make, point number two. The Lord Jesus has delivered us out of the hands of our dangerous spiritual enemies, and it is fitting that he should rule over us. The Lord Jesus has delivered us out of the hands of our dangerous spiritual enemies, and it is fitting that he should rule over us. Scripture makes this very plain. It's very clear. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Apostle John writes, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the men of Israel made Gideon their king for delivering them from the Midianite raiders. This delivery is only temporary, right? There are going to be more external enemies. This is not going to last forever. So how much more should we recognize Jesus as our king for delivering us from Satan and the power of death? This is an everlasting deliverance, brethren, that we are given by our Lord He is our king, in fact, and we should, in like, recognize that and live our lives as he is our king. So back, picking up the story in in, uh, Judges on Gideon, verses 24 through 27. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they, the Midianites, had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, this is men here, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, Ophrah, excuse me, Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Gideon's demand to his men here is doubly significant. The gift from his men in the form of gold earrings is a symbolic gesture of submission to Gideon. 
by willingly surrendering a portion of their loot to Gideon, they confirmed their new status as his vassals. And the amount of gold Gideon received takes on the character of a royal treasure here. 1,700 shekels of gold amounts to about 43 pounds of gold. This is indeed a treasure fit for a king. Gideon retained the king's symbols of the crescent amulets worn by the camels, by the pendants worn by the kings, the purple robes that these kings wore, and the neck bands around the necks of the camels. Now these crescent amulets, they're called saharonim, which means little moons. They're symbols of the lunar deity, which was a major element in ancient Near East religious uh, practices of the pagans. And this lunar deity at a time was greater in importance than the sun. Think of the lunar calendar that was used um, in, in this area of the world at this time. This lunar god was a fertility god and was considered the father of the people. And this god was seen in its crescent phase as the boat of heaven sailing the life-giving waters. It was also called the pure long horn of heaven. Think of a crescent moon in the sky. Doesn't it look like some horns? And this, this deity was often symbolized as a bull because of these horns. So Gideon, here we see, assumes the role of a king in his sponsorship of the Israelite cult, which means a system of worship and religious rites. That's a classic definition of cult as opposed to the modern definition, which means a group of crazies following someone who's even crazier than them. So if you come across the word cult in the commentaries, um, don't think that the commentator is making a disparaging remark about the Jews or Christians. That's the classic meaning of that word. So this ephod that he made is generally, earlier in the, in the Old Testament, understood to be a garment worn by the high priest over his robes, and it's woven throughout with golden thread. And it contains a pocket or a pouch in which the urim and the, the tumim were placed, these means of uh, oracle guidance of Yahweh. Um, in the wider ancient Near East context, though, an ephod could be used as a covering for a sacred object, not necessarily a garment worn by the high priest. So we might, what we might have here is the author of, um, of Judges uh, maybe using a figure of speech for, in which a part refers to the whole. Uh, it's called a synecdoche. Um, so the, the important thing, though, is this ephod, as we see in the text, obviously is an object of worship. That seems to be the case here, not just a garment that, you know, that the Israelite high priests wore, which were not, which were not worshipped, which that was, that, was, um, uh, that was forbidden to worship anything other than the Lord Almighty. So think about the description. What we've seen here about what Gideon has done, does it remind you of something? Does it remind you of someone? Does it remind you maybe of Aaron in Genesis 32? Both of them gathered golden earrings from their followers and fashioned a forbidden object of worship. Aaron, as, as we know from the very well-known story, makes a golden calf or a young bull that we read in the book of Exodus. And Gideon 
makes an ephod of gold from crescent moon ornaments. Crescent moon ornaments. The bull of the lunar god. And Gideon, by placing the ephod in his hometown, he makes his hometown Ophrah, his capital city. And this is a privilege that only is available to a king. And we read, after he did that, all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So by bringing this object of pagan worship to his own city, what has Gideon done but effectively rebuilt the Baal shrine of his father that he tore down at the Lord's direction? And the wording used in verse 27 here them lusting after it and it becoming a snare clearly connects this to illicit Baal worship. This is a term scripture uses for Baal worship time and time again. And what's really striking here is that this is the first time, first time during the time of the judges that Israel apostatizes while a judge is still living. What we've seen in the past, accounts of the judges, is they wait till the judge is dead, and then they go crazy. Well, here, the judge has led them into apostasy. And this is a warning sign, a warning sign to us. Many are led into false ways by one false step of a good man. And false worship soon makes way for false deities. Now, this is, the, this is the tension that we must hold in our minds and our thinking about this. Gideon is not a villain. Gideon was raised up by the Lord. Gideon was a deliverer. But you see where he went wrong? That's the lesson for us. That even though Gideon is a good man and did a good deed and was faithful in his task, he went off track. He went horribly off track. The term that's translated in the ESV version I read to you where it talks about him and his family. This term family is bayet and really means house, his house. And this has dynastic overtones to it. It's a term used for a royal line. Think of the house of David. That refers to David and his sons who are in line for the throne. In Great Britain, we now have the house of Windsor and we await a coronation there. Not that it really applies to us. We're their, you know, best forgotten cousins. But it's a modern day example. So, <clears throat> the inescapable conclusion, I would say, is that despite his protestation, Gideon actually assumed the role of king over Israel. But this is an unlawful and unauthorized kingship from the very beginning. Gideon was not chosen by Yahweh to be king. It's laid forth in the book of Deuteronomy, the Mosaic charter for kingship. And Gideon was not called by the Lord as a king. He was called as a deliverer or a judge. And apart from his basic illegitimacy as a ruler, Gideon's conduct as king is sinful from the very beginning. If we look at the Mosaic charter for kingship, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it explicitly forbade Israelite kings from using their position of power to multiply 
gold for themselves. And what is Gideon's first act after he kills the kings of Midian and takes their trappings and symbols of power, but to seize their gold? None of the judges, I would argue, received as much from the Lord as Gideon, with the possible exception of Samson. Only Gideon is described as being clothed with the Spirit of God in chapter 6. But none of the judges does more harm to Israel than Gideon. It's the first time in Israel's history that idolatry is officially sponsored by a leader of the nation. And as we know, sadly, it won't be the last time. This brings us to our third point that I'd like to bring out. What the Lord provides is sufficient. What the Lord provides is sufficient. The ephod, as commanded by the Lord, was to be with the current high priest wherever the tabernacle and the ark were located. So we don't have much information during this time in Israel as to the location of the tabernacle during, during the conquest and the settlement of Canaan. Uh, apparently, according to Joshua, the book of Joshua, and later in the book of Judges, it was usually at Shiloh. But later, even later in the book of Judges, we read that it's at Bethel. But it is the Lord who provided the priest and the ephod at his sanctuary, wherever he chose that sanctuary to be. And it was there that Israel, both the leaders and the people, were to receive guidance and direction from Yahweh, no place else. And if the Lord gave uniquely direct guidance to one of his servants at times, under some circumstances, as was the case with Gideon, as we've seen in the previous chapters, that didn't authorize that servant to assume that he was to establish an ongoing alternative channel of the Lord's guidance, as Gideon did. That's what Gideon did with this making of this ephod. And, and we Christians, we don't deal with ephods, high priests, or tabernacles uh, today. But still, often, we hanker after more than the Lord gives us, just like Gideon And when we desire more in the way of worship practices than what Scripture describes for us, or we desire more in the way of direct communication with the Lord rather than just His revealed Word of the Bible, then we are really suggesting that God has not adequately supplied us to worship Him or to be guided and directed by Him. Well, the Reformers rejected any idea of God's inadequacy, and rightly so and our need to fill in the gaps that he left. They rejected that. So thus the Reformation established the regulative principle that abolished worship practices that had crept into the church that were not given by God to his people, which recognizes that it is God alone who determines how it is to be worshipped. This felt need to have something more, something better than what we find in God's word when it comes to worshiping him invariably results in worship of ourselves. And I can think of many examples that I've witnessed over the years. I'm sure you can too in in churches 
other than this one, where this inventive sort of worship practice actually turns out to be centered on human beings and not on the Lord. And besides worship, we have to take care that we don't accuse God of inadequacy in his communication with us. Even though we are blessed with what comparatively few believers have had over the ages, and that is the complete canon of Scripture, the full and complete Word of God, as He has chosen to reveal it to His people. And each of us are blessed to have a Bible in our possession. And if we don't have a Bible in our possession, we can have it on our phone, free of charge. Early church didn't have this. This wasn't possible until fairly recently with the within the improvements in printing and that sort of thing. And think of the very early church, the time of the apostles and thereafter, the canon of scripture wasn't even fully complete. So we are blessed. We do have great communication from God, but many Christians want more. They want special divine revelation given only to them. They want to be special. They want to be God's oracle, just as Gideon wanted to be. They will say, God spoke to me. And I say, "Uh uh-uh. No, he didn't. Unless you read that in the Bible, God did not speak to you. Something may have been speaking to you, but I guarantee you and assure you, it was not the Lord God speaking to you. So Gideon is just a simple Israelite used for a tremendous purpose to be used as God's instrument to deliver Israel. But Gideon wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted more. He wanted the power and the trappings of royalty. And we've seen this in the church. Thus the regulative principle. Think of the Church of Rome and how their churches and how their headquarters, the Vatican City, how it resembles a royal court. It is not anything like the simple places of worship that the apostles in the early church had. Christian worship, as described in the early church in the New Testament, was simple, but it was tremendously powerful. It did not need the trappings of majesty and royalty. That is what beckons our fallen human nature is that ostentatious display of how important men are. We must beware of and resist the human desire for more than what the Lord has given us. We must be thankful and satisfied with what he has given us. Moving on here, Verses 28 and 32 in Judges chapter 8. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jerubal, the son of Joash, it's Gideon, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Sechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. 
And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Ebuzites. This is the last time during the time of the judges that Israel is granted rest. Israel forfeits the gift of the Lord God's rest. In the cycle of apostasy that the book of Judges depicts, we also witness the progressive degeneration of Israel. Things are spiraling down because Israel refuses to serve the Lord who saves them. This is the consequence of continual hardening of the heart toward God. And we see Gideon here in these verses falls into the trap that will snap shut on the kings of Israel in the future time and time again. He takes many wives. Although we're not told what problems this resulted in personally for Gideon, we can imagine. We shall see in the text that Israel will suffer because of the offspring from one of his concubines. And this brings us to my fourth point and last point. I know normally there's, there's three, but you get a bonus point today. Extra credit, if you will. Point number four, sin has far-reaching consequences that we cannot even imagine when we stray. Sin has far-reaching consequences that we cannot even imagine when we stray. And no matter what we may gain at first, we may gain pleasure, we may gain power, we may gain riches, but loss, devastating loss, will invariably follow. I've witnessed this, and I know that you've witnessed this also. But it's a preacher's task to bring to the forefront facts that many people push away, things they don't want to deal with. Sin brings horrible things. It can bring loss of employment. It can bring loss of freedom. It can bring loss of family. It can bring loss of life. I'm talking about death here. And for the unrepentant who reject Christ, as we're told in the book of Revelation, those whose names are not found written in the book of life, the second death, now I know this is a most unfashionable topic, and and many seminaries teach their, their students who are to become pastors that, you know, the modern person does not like this. This is not good apologetics to speak of hell because it'll just turn them away. Well, turn away, but you will hear the word of God being preached in this house. The second death is the lake of fire where the devil, the beast, and the false prophet will be consigned forever. No matter what cute memes are on social media about having parties in hell with the devil, that's not true. The devil and his henchmen are in the lake of fire. They're not ruling hell. They are being punished eternally in hell. That is not a place that I would want anyone, even the people that have given me the worst trouble in my life. I would not want anyone to go there. God forbid that the people we know would end up in such a place for eternity. 
There's no escape hatch in this place. There's no second chance in this place. Your second chances are now. Your third chances, your fourth chances, your fifth chances, and on and on are now. As long as you draw breath, repentance and forgiveness is available to you. But once breath ceases, and it will cease for every single one of us, unless the Lord returns first. Once your breath ceases, the door of the Lord's mercy slams shut for eternity. And on the other side, you will find a door, an iron-bound door of death that will hold you until the day of judgment. And then we will all be called to account. If you've not gained forgiveness in Christ, and I know my brethren here, that it's not that I'm preaching to the choir. There's people on the internet that are going to hear this. And we might have visitors that need to hear this. How many breaths do you have left to draw if you do not have forgiveness in Christ? Even Gideon, who lived to a good old age, experienced that one last breath, and now awaits judgment according to what he has done. So says the book of Revelation. Now I'm not judging Gideon. That is not my job. That is not our job. But we will all be held to account. And those of us that are in Christ, who have made Christ their Lord and Savior, the master over their lives, when we stand before that great white throne of judgment, we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. What a blessed thing to look forward to. Join me in prayer as we close here. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the fact that You want to communicate with us, Father, that you want us to know these things that demonstrate your love for us, Lord, and we're so grateful for that. We're grateful for the opportunity to worship you, and we're thankful that you have given us guidance for that and that we've had godly men over the centuries who have followed this practice that you have laid out, who have paved the way for us, that we just, we just need to follow what they do and, and, and we're, we're doing what you would will. And Father, that's what we want. We want to do what you will. Guide us, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may be obedient servants to you, Father. Help us in this week ahead, Father, as we approach the, the blessed day of Christmas where we celebrate the birth and Savior of God the Son as a human being, this Christmas Day, Father. This time, as you know, can be very stressful, very hectic for people. Father, help us not to lose sight of what we are going to celebrate on the next Lord's Day. Father, and I lift up those who are listening to this remotely, Father. Again, those that are ill, those that are sick, those that are in pain, whether it be spiritual or emotional or physical pain, Father, I pray for healing. Father, just bless the rest of this day. Bless us as we go forth from your house and bless us as we return this evening to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.